So to kick off then, we haven't got an interview for today. So we thought we'd just have a conversation around the few things that were in the news. And it's going to be a bit of a weird episode because we've already been talking for an hour, I think now. <laughs> and it's not all appropriate for an episode of the podcast. Today I'm here with Duncan, Sarah and Jeff. And we're going to talk a little bit about what you said, Duncan, the points that you gave us, the the contractor's right to reply, I think, is worth looking at because that feeds into all sorts of issues and naturally segues into the ecological, uh, sorry, the building for a climate emergency. Yeah. Because this is, contractors are going to get blamed for stuff that isn't their fault because they're often building to spec. Yeah. Well, can I, can I pick up on that one? And but I suppose we could, you know, the, we could talk about the, I mean, the weather. I think it's been discussed, you know, you know, ad nauseum to be honest with you about the, the the weather in the last week or so. But I think the contractor's right to reply is an interesting one because both you and I, Dan, I certainly had lots of contractors. We had an interview with Peter Rickaby, if you haven't heard it, you can come back and, and listen in. And yeah, I think both Peter and I were quite critical of contractors and that I think there's a right to reply there. And it's, and it's probably something that I is easy Contractors are easy to kick, and there's a very good point somebody made to me was it's not, you know, yes, you can have bad contractors, but you can also also have bad clients who don't know what the heck they want, and therein lies one of the issues. I think you've got to look at the either side of the debate about what is it clients are looking to try and specify and what it, what is it contractors are asked to deliver. So I think there's a right to reply there. I think there's actually a, a good podcast for, for some good contractors to come on and talk about the work that they're doing. But there's also a point to be made about if you're delivering retrofit programmes, what is it you're asking contractors to do? Because far too often, I think there's an ambiguity there and there isn't, there isn't a clear directive about what clients want their contractors to do. And obviously, constraints around cost. So what is it that they were... Like you, you got text messages and phone calls and that. What was being said to you? This grievance, yeah. you know, potentially justifiably. And I'm interested, like, because Jeff, he reports on bad practice and Sarah mm. sees her, uh, or until she began to describe herself as an ex-architect, uh-huh. she used to see her vision smashed at the, yeah. the contractor build stage, I assume. <laughs> I don't know. Depends. I'm just going to buy there are some good builders out there doing good work who, uh, who uh, atoning for or making up for the mistakes of architects, for instance, and the you know that, that happens too. You know, this is a good this is a good point. It's far too easy for me to to, to look at this from a um, from my position. And, from, a, and... from a procurement perspective, I'm sure it's very different when you're you know when you've got builders bidding bidding to do works and, and trying to find a way to value engineer the hell out of the uh, out of the project. You know, I just wanted to say on this point that I think given the broad range of perspectives that we could try to include here in a way that we're so saying, oh, we're not blaming you, we're not blaming you, we're not blaming you. I don't think we have the time for that. I think actually the the issue here is that what's so often at the crux of, oh, that bit went wrong. Where did it go wrong? What happened there? Is a lack of um, an agreed set of what you're trying to achieve through a project. And the points throughout that project that allow for people to disregard information that came before. So Mm -hmm. the procurement um, routes don't suit necessarily well-intended design strategies or there are all sorts of places where people can fall mm. apart and you end up with, oh, well, I had to correct the crap work of that architect or our contractor just swapped out everything good that we put in there for stuff that was bad. Or yeah. it, we designed it as this and it didn't come out like that. Bits that are lacking there is a sort of a joined up better procurement system that includes for things like the standards at the start that should be non-negotiable when they start out like that. Mm. Um, and let's not even talk about building regs as a standard. 
talk about them as the bare legal minimum, but then also about how do you how do you design and build for performance and how do you build that in so that it isn't just about one and done walk away at the end. It doesn't matter. Mm. So I actually think the point is much more about a sort of a more connected way, a circular way. So what did they say, Duncan? Yeah, so, so the main point, I think a lot of the, the guys, I'm not going to name names, but there was at least half a dozen, and, and some of whom are, are, I know very well and are ex- extremely good good contractors. And I think, the, I think the point they were making was the episode framed contractors in one light, and that's that's not accurate. We, ha- you know, we have to be objective. There are lots of really, really good contractors, and there's some bad contractors. And I think it's like any other industry when you have a small group of people who perhaps aren't, aren't, aren't the majority, they can sometimes, um, you know, sort of, cloudy judgment of others so the 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 main argument was about being a bit hacked off of being bracketed within a contractors will just try to do the minimum or just try to um, substitute specifications for a lower quality product. And that's an absolutely valid comment. So like I said, I'm not going to name names, it was half a dozen, but I think there's a good podcast if anyone's listening to to come on and maybe even have a couple of contractors talk about the work they're doing, because there are lots of really good contractors. I think Sarah makes a good point about um, in the design element. However, here's here's the point I would make, and this is probably because I'm a surveyor. Is there's a gap, isn't there? Because you've you've got architects designing can can design really good you know projects and and so on, and you've got contractors. And I think what we have to look at is how how something leaves the drawing board and is delivered in a way that I think charter surveyors aren't used in the way that they possibly should be just now. You know. There's some really good quarter works out there, and there's a lot of you know not really good quarter works, and we haven't discussed that. We've just looked at the argument between designers and contractors. The middle bit about who oversees that work is crucial, and I think you know you wouldn't you would expect me to do this, wouldn't you? But as a charter surveyor, I think there's a massive role in retrofit for charter surveyors, and I don't think charter surveyors have been used mm-hmm. in the way that perhaps they should be just now. That's me. Soapbox off. That's very interesting. I would just jump in to say I think it's absolutely on, on uh, spot on to say that. Um, uh, it's really important, uh, as I think you were saying, Sarah, Sarah, to have locked in kind of tight requirements in, in 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 the project up front. That changes everything because if you don't have that, obviously the good contractor can't compete against the bad contractor, right? You know, uh, if you're trying to do something better, it gets it comes to a race to the bottom. So that's all true, but I think it goes further than that too. I think one point that a uh, uh, merchant I know, um, it was actually Will Kirkman from Eco Merchant, um, put, put to me a while ago, was that it's really important that the architects know. That the product that they're uh, the products they're putting into the specification, for instance, are actually available. Will the builder, uh, you, you know, uh, end up just going to substitute for uh, for something completely incomparable um, in the, uh, from a local merchants, for instance, you know, uh, because they can't get the the product. So that that due diligence is really important as well. well you know? That's the point that Alex makes. Like in his absence, he's looking after his wee boy. He was supposed to be with us. He keeps making about the extension that he put on the back of his house. He tried to use modular construction panels and none of the people who he was able to speak to had any idea, so they all said no. And he want, he tried to ask lots of insightful and forward-thinking questions, but he was met with a blank generally because the expertise just wasn't available to him. Mm-hmm. That's another problem. I mean, this comes back to the education stuff that will feed into the conversation somewhere. But that, that's a that's a good point because you know this is that we were I think we were talking earlier on about existing in a little bubble in our, our little bubble. My little bu- bubble is 
um, that has a lot of architects and a lot of our, some of our, those architects as friends. And and I I look at things from an architectural perspective and the architects are great, they do a really good job, but that's not the norm. You know, in fact, I was in front of an architect not long ago and, and you know, the level of understanding about some of the, 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 the building physics that we were talking about wasn't, wasn't there. So, you know, again, it's disingenuous of us to suggest that all architects are great, know what they're doing, and all contractors are, you know, um, uh, don't and, and are trying to substitute materials. The, the, the reality is much more complex than that. And um, perhaps we need to sometimes challenge ourselves to look outside our own little, um, own little world. So, yeah. I think, you know, s- the, the point for me is that what we need is much more collaboration and clear communication between you know across projects too yeah. and there has to be a, a really a really good grounding of what's going to be buildable on site for instance um yeah. even in the quality of the detailing for instance you know how the detailing is done it's amazing how how uh, bad people can be at, at, at comparing notes and talking and and, and, yeah. and sharing information and you know the more, the more that can be done the better we'll be in this regard you know All right so like in terms of education like you wanted to talk about like those Cape Brick fellas, because they appear to be an organisation that needs to get itself known better, presumably. Yeah, so the Cape, the Cape Brick, so Lucy over in, uh, who used to be at Best, is now over in, in, in Cape Brick. Um, uh, I can't remember the holding company's name, but what I think Jeff and I are particularly, I mean, the things that I'm interested in, um, in terms of the operational carbon, but we, we, we've had this chat. We, we, we've got the solutions for an operational carbon, how you, how you become neutral from an operational carbon perspective. And, and, and that's, you know, building physics, but the, the, the bigger part about something that Jeff's been more involved in me in the last six weeks or so is on the embodied part. And I think the two things that I'm really interested in are, are concrete. We've been talking about that at another job I've got just now all week. And, and key brick, there's a, there's a significant proportion of our bricks. I can't remember the figures in terms of the millions or billions, but I think there's at least a third of our bricks are imported from abroad. The thing that we like about the key brick thing is the, the fact that it is not kiln fired, i.e. it does need lots of, and we have to investigate that more, Jeff's probably more on yeah. top of that than me. So no, I, I was, I was, my ears pricked up when I saw that in their information, yeah. that, that really got me excited. It's one thing to include recycled content, but to do it in a way that uh, bricks are a, a very, very, brick manufacturing is a very energy intensive process normally. So if they're well, not... Let's, they've let's some, just say what it is before we just talk about the process. Like what is K-Brick? Because the manufacturing process is a bit of a moot point until we know. It's a brick. Made <laughs> <laughs> uh, from, uh, I think, up to 90% recycled content. Um, I don't, uh, yeah, 90%, rec- uh, the world's first 90% recycled brick, they describe it as. Um, yeah. And the so materials we'll, going to it. You know, when we talk about this circular economy and that sort of cradle to, to, to cradle thing, I think that, that to me is is if you are using recycled component parts from a building and putting them back into brick and you're not, and you are compressing that to my understanding of how it's, how it's made then, you know, th- th- that's really, when we talk about the kind of circular economy, that, that to me is, is, is what we're looking at. And, I think what, what what these like companies need is, is support and and how we can you know how, how they can um, introduce the product at, at scale. Yeah, it's just worth singling out because brick can be a very significant part of the embodied carbon of the building. Um, uh, so when you can see you know, and it seemed like a kind of an intractable problem, and it's something that such a big part of the architectural kind of uh, vernacular of, of the United Kingdom, for instance. Um, yeah. So. Uh, you know, when you when you come across a product like that, it gives you hope that a, mm. that, that, that a, a problem that you couldn't otherwise really see a solution to an, an, an obvious one, there may be something in it. You know, um, uh, so yeah, it, it's 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 worth uh, it's yeah. K, 
hyphen brick b r i q I think it's yeah. So yeah. I think I, I think Bess were involved, and I think Harriet Watts were involved as well in the trial and all that. But it's exciting stuff, and I think it's a it's exactly the kind of products we need to look at. We've been talking about cross laminated timber, and, and you know, as a, as a substitute for steel, you know, a lot of the steel that we're using in Western Europe is Chinese. You know, we have to start to look at some of the more uh, complex issues of the building, and, and that is tends not to be op- operational carbon. Like I say, we've kind of We've solved the operational carbon. We know how to do that. Whether you do it or not, it's entirely up to to to, to you as a client or a builder. But the, the things that you can, you know, escape are where do we bring materials from? Where do they come from? How are they manufactured? And what's the impact that has in the environment when you bring it to site? I think what these guys have got is something that's genuinely really exciting. And similar way that Jeff and I have been talking about, and this shows you the this shows you the the banality of my life that Jeff and I are interested in, in sustainable. <laughs> you're companies. talking to me. <laughs> Yeah, actually, this is, a, I'll give you a laugh. My wife came upstairs uh, the other night and, and I was, uh, I had to scurry the way I was watching something on, on, on the phone and she's, what, what on earth are you doing? And and she she grabbed the phone off me. I was actually watching a guy with silicon render um, and she was saying, <laughs> God, what has become, this is a really interesting European, Eastern European guy, there's a YouTube channel about a silicon render application and she said, what's become of you? <laughs> You're such a loser. <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah, from your professional perspective do you encounter these products or do you have to seek them out for yourself like how does that because the design part is the most upfront part and architects often have the potential to specify but not always specify Mm. the products that are used you know in the more glamorous projects uh but you won't necessarily i mean i'm not an architect i've never worked as an architect uh I I would like to think so because you're not qualified as one. (laughs) I think the problem is that actually you, I think the problem is that you do come across products from the product perspective. So you'll get stuff, people sending you links about stuff or we've all been to trade shows where people are trying to flog you things and products and whatnot. And that's okay. That can be useful in, in certain instances. I don't think it's a good idea to allow your product choices to drive your design as such. What are the standards that you've got in there? What is the approach to the embodied carbon that we talked about? Going at things from what their properties are. And then if those properties that you're looking for are resolved in a product that you can then specify, then good. That's the sort of way to go about it. You end up in all sorts of problems if you're like, this product is the only product that I'm allowing you to use. If you say, this is the performance of this particular product, this is how much we're allowed, that's the way that you know we should be approaching things. It's not to say that if K-Brick sends you a, a manual and you think, well, that looks good. I mean, that's pretty clear cut, actually. If they're basically saying it's a brick, everybody loves you know designing mm-hmm. with bricks. But hey, this one's got 90% recycled material mm-hmm. in it. Yeah, you could probably go there. there are, it's just that it's really useful for these products to be coming through and we need them. But I think the bit in education for architects is much, much more around what do you know about the materials that you are specifying? Because like, you know, really it's much, much more about the the whole life carbon of products and and projects. And it should be that we're using those calculated methods to approach things rather than the product-based. Like a calorie counting approach, basically. Yeah. So is this this the designer-led method that you talk about a lot duncan because like what it, it yeah. sounds like so got this is oh well, yeah I, th- I think i think what we have to in terms of design led i think what, you know and, and this is again getting back to the question about contractors and clients it's about you know whether if a client let's just look at say an authority or, 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 or an individual if you're contracting with an architect 
then you have to be quite clear in what your requirements are. Now, like you say, that we're looking at operational carbon, so depending on budget and, 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 and constraints for existing buildings, then there's a limit to what you can take. So I think this is about the, the information that, that clients are armed with to make decisions from an embodied and and uh, an operational carbon perspective. And, and yeah, I think I think you've got to... The, and this is the thing that kind of hacks me off a little bit. You know, there is a lot of misinformation. There isn't a lot of great clients out there, and I've talked to a lot of architects. You know, there's a lot of clients out there that don't have a, a, you know, a full understanding of what it is they want to deliver. Now, I'm not trying to hijack the the, the conversation here just now, but we, we have to talk about that and how important that is in relation to what's going to happen this October, because you know, when if you have a client who's not entirely sure what they want and an architect who's not entirely sure what the client wants, then we're not going to start to, to, to push the needle on reducing bills by four thousand pounds. And I think we have to, you know, see that choice through the prism of how you can make an impact in terms of heating homes. So, so yeah, is that a problem with the procurement process from the absolute start? That no one knows what they really want; they just want the thing off their desk. I mean, I'm I'm presenting a worst case scenario there, obviously. Well, I also think what we've what we've done in the last thirty years. If you talk to older guys, I started in the building site in the, in the late 1980s, just about the late 1980s. Shows you my age. I was only ten at the time. And um, what what you what, what you found then was architects had a much more involved a role both uh, both in the design stage and on site. Now, over the last 30 years, and Jeff and Sarah can chip in here if they think I'm wrong on this one, we've kind of moved away from that because we've sought kind of solace in BBAs and warrants and contractor and manufacturer's details. And I think we've done that at the risk of the fundamental design and how, how we design buildings. We've, we've placed a lot of the emphasis on, well, the manufacturer's got a warranty or we've got a BBA. Now, I think Grenfell has blown that out of the water. I think when you look at the process involved and as a, as a contractor myself, in various different stages and the client. You know, when you're on site, you realise the limitations of what those are. But but at a policy level, at a high level, if you, if you speak to people making decisions on investment in housing, they would look to those certificates and think, well, that's great. That's a you know, that's the that's the um the certificate of choice or that's a certificate of quality. And I think what we would all agree with here is, you know, those are very loose documents. Yeah, I mean, they're no substitute for understanding what you're doing, yeah. right? And that's that's the fundamental point that, you know, we, we need people who really understand buildings to be designing them, basically, and understanding the consequences of their decisions. I think, I wanted to interject here, there's something that Andy Simmons talks about, which I'm badgering him about. I'm, 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 I've mentioned it before in the podcast, radical sufficiency. And I think, I think there's principles there that should be articulated and which should be asked for any at the start of any construction project before you've decided to procure a building. Um, and I think it should be asked, I think it should be extended beyond construction. And it's those principles. First one, do we need it? Do we need to buy the thing? You know, the second one, is it too big in the context of the building or is it is it in the right, is it in a sustainable location from a transport perspective and all that kind of stuff, you know? And then what's, then you get onto the point of how do we, do this in a way that uses the least amount of the least damaging um, or, or most positive, should we say, most restorative kind of resources we can use, you know, the tread most likely on the earth for the maximum impact in terms of performance and, uh, and so on. And those principles, I think, I think they're just, they should, they should, they really should be applied. And in that spirit, by the way, yeah. um, two people we should try to get on the podcast, if we, uh, it, it, it may be nigh on impossible, but the Pritzker prize winners um, from, Last year, I think it was Lacaton and Basal, these French architects, yeah. who, um, who famously, with some of their 
projects. Uh, there, there was a specific architecture project they they, they did for municipality, I think, uh, we're sitting in uh, in France, where they at the end they ended up recommending that nothing be done. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and that's that's part of their whole kind of thing. Was you know uh, trying trying to trying to first of all, do we need the thing, and 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 you know, and and, and remove it if we can. I would say when just speaking about it from like the architect side and the architectural education side, I know I've mentioned this before, but I was doing a talk at the LSA and one of the comments that I made to the students was just don't build anything new, build nothing new. And that's not a new concept from my idea. It's stuff that some schools of architecture are toying with and certainly what, as you mentioned, Blackton Vassal have, have been mentioning as well. Mm-hmm. And um the point around that is, you know, there was a response from a student who was just like saying, that's really hard to hear as an architect. Mm-hmm. It's only hard to hear if you believe that the building makes you an architect. It's mm-hmm. not. It's the way you think makes you an architect. It's the way you think makes you any player in this in this field. And I think that the problem that we have goes back be back further. Like not it doesn't start at like um, even the building project. It starts at like. Why are we involved in the construction industry and the built environment? Why do we need it? What does it need to do? What role does it have to play? And actually, we've been for far too long just, you know, dreaming up a new building. And then there is this new building. Now, how can we make that sustainable? There's a statistic we've got. um, There's more anthropogenic mass in the planet than there is biomass. That means there's more stuff that we have made in this planet than there is actual biomass right and it is set to triple by 2040 so you know kind of tinkering around the edges of should we make this you know this new building a little bit more you know sustainable or should we do it at all needs a radical mindset mindset shift and that mindset shift has to look at what do we have already and how do we use that there is no greater time to be creative in this industry than now if you just point blank just like ban new materials like i mean i know i'm being you know facetious but you you know you look around at everything that you have and you see how do you reuse it how do you embed an entirely different circular approach how do you embed donut economics and everything that you do like we just have to go one further like why go halfway why not go all the way why not really push your imagination Really so, your imagination. Somehow we've absolved the contractors of any responsibility here. <laughs> yeah, and a job. Yeah, I think we have. Well, no, I think, I think, I think we'll we need, But we'll need them as well. And it's not like they don't know. It's not like contractors don't know how to engage with existing buildings, but they're told, get rid of that, dem- demolish that thing and get rid of the, this thing. And there's no value in doing it slower so that we can recoup those materials. It's, you know, it's about the shift change as well, about like they would absolutely know how to deal with materials. They know how hard it is to take apart a building. But mm-hmm. then if we're saying, well, that has a value, then they're already well placed to do that. It just needs a value put against it for them instead so, of it being there is no value in this existing building. Knock it down, get rid of it quickly. Like that will that that will then deliver a way of behaving with that material. But if we change our approach to that material, we will behave better. So we're back to profit over quality. Yeah. So I mean, in terms of the, the, the you know what say is just saying there just now, and I think what we what we should focus on is more the client side. Now I know that I come from a local authority background and and or a housing association background as, as well. But what what is 
What is really frustrating is, for the, and we've had this conversation and it has to be said, the amount of local authorities who have, have declared a climate emergency and yet the amount of local authorities I see planning on demolishing buildings and building new, that's a bigger issue than what we're talking about contractors. Contractors will only do what they are commissioned to do. And I've been really frustrated, you know, I haven't said anything on social media, but I, I, I look at what looks to be challenging stock, certainly sometimes I'm not disputing that the stock that's being and demolished isn't challenging, but I think it's more challenging from a housing management perspective rather than a technical perspective. And I think we have to focus on landlords and why landlords are not, if you declare the climate emergency and you're making plans to demolish stock, I think you have to have a really good reason for doing that. And, and I think that has to be a technical reason about the constraint of the building, because if it's because homes aren't popular, I think that is more a housing management issue. And I feel quite strongly about that. Lots of authorities aren't been taken to task on the fact that they declared the climate emergency the embodied carbon in terms of taking something down and building something new is significant. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one because you you want to get to a situation ultimately where you if you're going to justify demolishing a building, you should be required to do a calculation to quantify it uh, that, that the impact of constructing uh, a new building is going to be less than the impact of of. Uh, staying with and fixing up the existing building. Well, what I'd also say, sorry, Dan, what I'd also say as well, if, if, if you're going to knock down that building, you're not going to build towards a pacifist kind of standard, then that's even that's even more disingenuous in terms of a claim, you know, or, or certainly use building physics. But what I think could be funny is I might get half a dozen calls from, from people in social landlords this week saying, listen, that's not fair. <laughs> so maybe it's going to go from, from builders last week to social landlords this, who knows. Well, I think fundamentally, these are all systemic issues and they're driven by motivators. Like as I relentlessly describe as, we're proud of profit, we're not proud of quality. And this is at all levels. It's not just maximising shareholder value, it's maximising margins. And it's not just maximising margins, it's about maximising savings. You know, the euphemistic efficiencies that are sought left, right and centre. Like I've been privy to it myself. But the big problem underlying it is that there is no encouragement to do the best possible job. So this is what Sarah was talking about. People do want to do a great job, but efforts to do a great job are undermined consistently at every stage. So it could be an architect's belligerence undermines the, Mm -hmm. the effectiveness of the delivery through the contractor, or it could be that the contractor undermines the architect's ambition by substituting a product which on the face of things, it has a similar value, but Mm long-term it was discounted in the architect's mind because Mm -hmm. it wasn't actually the best one for the desired outcome. We've got Mm -hmm. the the person commissioning the project in the first place who's commissioning the end goal without thinking or considering or even having the room to consider that ultimately we should be thinking about this building's 100-year lifespan, not a 30-year lifespan, because the building's going to change in use at some point. We know this because mm-hmm. we live in these buildings and we work in these buildings. Like We exist mm-hmm. in them all the time. We're never given the scope to do this properly. I think what you're saying is right as well. We should mm-hmm. have some local authority people come on and talk about this mm-hmm. because, I mean, what appears to have motivated a lot of this for you, Duncan, is, well, not motivated. The manifestation of your motivations and ambition can be seen in Renfrewshire. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Like any project, large-scale project, it's riven with missteps, false steps, problem, but the ambition 
And, and a great deal of what's happening there is absolutely magnificent. This is the thing, because going back to the point we were making earlier on about, you know, about well, about cost of, of energy, fuel poverty. If you look across local authorities and what, what they're doing just now, there's only one, and that's you know testament to the appetite that politically and, and senior management have at Renfrewshire is that that's only one authority that's saying, look, we get it, it's building physics and that's what we're designing to. And you either call it a carbon light standard or anything, it doesn't matter, you're using building physics and you're using the the, the energy or, or a demand reduction model as a primary focus on how you tackle those retrofits. That's brilliant. You know, and no one else is looking at architectural design that then feeds into that work stream. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of my work there, but there's a heck of a lot of other people's work. And the point that. here is yeah, that, that some of the things, sorry for inter- interjecting, but some of the, some of the things that um, that we need to be thinking about uh, in terms of building quality and so on. You know, embodied carbon is a trickier one because uh, some 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 of that you, you are thinking about sixty sixty year hundred year horizons or whatever, um, but. If you don't, if you get the building physics wrong, the problems may become manifest in the, really in 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 the, in the short term. Yeah. If, you, if you divide up the, the construction by you know by by sector in terms of the the tenure of, of, of occupancy and so on, the self build market has always been a good driver for for, mm. for 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 quality and and to some extent as well the you know the 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 the, uh, the local authority sector as well because it's, because they retain an interest in it. It's a mm. spec builder obviously where they're not even thinking beyond the the, the you know, the, the handover of the property or, or at least the snagging period, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's the, the, big, the most egregious kind of sins happen there. Coupled with extending, looking at projects from a 30, 40 year to a 100 year lifespan to assist with this issue, let us also overlay seven generation thinking on buildings. So let's not look at the building and how long the building performs, but how will that building serve the future generation's to come and how can we benefit from the impacts that the previous generations have already put in place and how can we make the best of those things? Because if you expand your thinking beyond the building, but to the people that are using it and the people that will need to use it and deal with the problems of that building that you're handing forward, you know, those sorts of things, they're just like small thoughts. But if you put the people in your mind while you are working in this sphere, I guarantee that's going to have big, big impact changes on how you just decide, I'm just going to pass that on. It's not my problem anymore. I've got my paycheck. I'll see you later. Yeah, I mean, that was something that Gary Wilburn from EP Group was referring to or alluding to. I mean, I'm sure he said something, maybe not seven generations, but thinking forward or acknowledging the graft that went into the thing that were, that happened before. And this isn't just retrofit. It's about reimagining the, the potential for use of a, a building and its place in a community. Because like buildings used to be much more significant in terms of community. I've said many, many times, we look at building stock in terms of asset value nowadays. Yeah, we do. And that's all part of trying to unpick the power that a community can have um, to make a a much more thriving place for anybody to live. So I think it's really good that you've mentioned the word community because I think we have always paid some like lip service to community as an industry without really understanding what that means and also to think of those words as as verbs and not nouns like to be in a community to act in a community-based way all too often it's horseshit the way Mm. a property developer approaches it now one of the projects that duncan's got coming up which we can't really talk about but like that's putting community thinking not in necessarily the first phase of the operations but that's firmly embedded in the future planning 
laying yeah, foundations. Let's just be really clear that community and consultation in projects is not putting up CGI option one or two in your community hall when the project is already in the bag. That, my friends, is not community consultation. Let <laughs> me tell you that it is. <laughs> this is what Gary was saying. And if anyone's not listened to that episode, I really recommend that you do. Yeah, because he's, really good. he's yeah. brilliant. Uh, he is brilliant. Yeah. But he talked about contractors, architects, developers, all being too scared to engage people. Yeah. And that's another issue that, that can ultimately... It's almost madness, though. Like, we are scared to talk to people. What? How did we get there? Anyway. Well, it's because um, if I, they say something you don't want to hear, it's a problem for you. And you know what the problem yeah. does? It minimizes the opportunity of your profit because it's going to mm-hmm. take longer or you're going to have to do something different or you're going to have to spend mm-hmm. more time or more money or do another thing. Yeah. The less I think this is what... Sorry, go ahead. I know. No, I know we all have to shoot soon. And 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 this is what Sarah and I and it's framing that cost and value, isn't it? And and that's the argument. The argument is about what's the value, what you're trying to do. Yeah, there is a cost associated with that, but cost are we yeah, uh, wind up then? Bit, 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 so yeah, cool. Um I yeah, I need to leg like, it back to the fucking magazine deadline. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Well, um, in terms of like cost, value, community, engagement. Check the Gary Wilburn EP group episode. That was excellent. And we've got yeah. Robbie. What's his job at DRES? Head, head of sustainability. Now, Robbie's an all-rounder, but he's building community thinking into their mm. project in a really interesting and unique way. I was really impressed with their ambition, but okay. he's going to be a really interesting chat. So we've got, like, best part of 40 minutes there. If you stick around after the credits, okay. the end theme tune, you can hear us bollocking on about things that Jeff was concerned not everyone would be interested in and they might not be. This is, you know, it was just a chat that we had while we were waiting for Duncan to turn up because he was really late. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 more the fact, I think these are, we don't need to talk about it now and I think they're, it's very interesting discussions but I can well imagine some of the kinds of people who are listening to the podcast, you know, ooh, this is a bit lefty, isn't it? Uh, anyway, right. Grant. So um, I'll, I'll edit something out of all of this. Much obliged, Grant. I'm going to crack on back into this magazine deadline. Grant, cool. I'm going to go smell you. Right. Okay. I'll speak to you later. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.